Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is FC Cincinnati coach Pat Noonan. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two and have big plans to cover two World Cups, men's and women's, in the next 12 months. So sign up now, free or paid, at grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Pat Noonan in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? We should let the listeners know that you recorded this interview with Pat Noonan, the head coach of FC Cincinnati, before they were involved in a very controversial decision over an offside in their Hell is Real Derby match against the Columbus Crew, and he went off on the officials beforehand. So you will not ask him about this and incur yet more fines, presumably. Nice F-bomb, though, he dropped in the post-game press conference, (laughs) which he did not drop on our interview. Yes. Um, But yeah. Uh, it's that time of year, right? I mean, like every point matters in MLS, especially if you're right near the playoff line and Cincinnati and Columbus most definitely are. So two, two there over the weekend, but lots to talk about here, both abroad and in the U S. So let's dive right in. Let's start with Liverpool winners, nine nil against Bournemouth, hapless Bournemouth, I think is That's the definition of hapless right there. But that comes after Liverpool had lost to Manchester United earlier in the week on Monday. And this was Liverpool's first win of the Premier League season. So we had been asking, like, what's wrong with Liverpool? And suddenly after a 9-0 win, they have tied for the best goal difference in the league. (laughs) So maybe, (laughs) maybe there's not much wrong with Liverpool. What's your sense? Well, I think we need more data um, because Liverpool, the way that they started not getting all three points against Crystal Palace, not getting all three points against Fulham, and then losing to, I mean, you talk about hapless, Manchester United entering that game. We haven't ta- we haven't spoken since that game. And that game was so rich with narrative because Manchester United were so up against it from a narrative standpoint that it was so interesting to watch these two teams that... In the end, Liverpool was sort of like they needed it. They needed that win because in the early seasons of the or the early stages of the Premier League, you can very easily look back at the end of the season and go, "Man, those drop points to Fulham, those drop points to Man United, those drop points to Palace were the reason why we needed to win 17 straight games in order to win the Premier League at the end of the season off Man City or who knows Brighton at this stage." Um, but either way, Liverpool, I just think that. The, the, all this talk about the Klopp's seventh season was going on this week. Seventh season right. got relegated with Mainz. Seventh season finished in the bottom half of the Bundesliga with Dortmund. I don't think that's going to be the case this season. I think they're too good of a team to all of a sudden think about they're going to fall out of the top four. And they showed their strength against Bournemouth on Saturday. But I don't know how real the issues are. I think we'll have to see them continue to play top-level opposition in the Champions League as well. Even in the 9-0, they still don't get Mo Salah going, um, which has been one of the talking points of this season. But for me, I still do have concerns about Liverpool. Bournemouth, though, woof. I know that they've played Arsenal, Man City, and Liverpool in three consecutive games. It's hard to really know what their level is going to be because the one team that you'd expect them to, to, to compete against on their opening day, they beat Aston Villa at home. But either way... I just find fascinating where Liverpool is at right now because there are genuine questions about a team that just went to the Champions League final and was a hair's breadth away from a quadruple. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've noticed so far in the season is Virgil van Dijk has not been his usual self for all of these first few games, and that's a huge issue for Liverpool. So we'll see as we get more data points if he's falling off or or not. Yeah, even Darwin Nunez, I mean, he's got a three-game suspension, got the red card. So we're not seeing the full Liverpool team here, and we will soon. Uh, but 9-0 is very impressive, and we'll you know, we'll see where they go from here. I mean, um, I do remember, especially Klopp's seventh season with Dortmund, it was just so strange how it just, you kept assuming things would get better week after week after week, especially in the first half of the season. And actually, it did get better in the second half of the season, but not nearly enough to change things. If you remember, it was actually announced with some time left in the season with Dortmund that he would be leaving at the end of that season. And so um, it almost seemed, I remember all the data showed that like the underperformance in results actually wasn't reflected in what was 
happening from a data perspective, but strange seasons can happen. And this gets back to sort of what we were talking about preseason of like, everyone's just like, Man City and Liverpool are going to dominate the league and nobody's going to come close. Can anyone break the top two? And now it certainly seems like that might be possible, especially when it comes to Liverpool and who knows, Arsenal or Spurs or whomever. And I think we it's a good reminder not to be too dogmatic. It's still very early in the season, though, and Liverpool can come back and, and do what they do. Man United has already sort of righted the ship at least over the last couple of weeks to get two straight wins in a row. And, and so, like, it's a weird time of the season, right? Because I do know that when we hit the FIFA window, it's likely that a coach or more than one will be fired in yeah. the Premier League during that window because that's often when the first firings happen. And so I'm very curious to see who that might end up being. I would be surprised if it's nobody. And so if you're Scott Parker, by the way, at Bournemouth, you might be a little concerned right now because 9-0, that's rough, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a 10 has never happened, and Liverpool got the ninth early enough, as it were, that they still had time to go chase 10. And it's interesting because I, I, I was um, away last weekend, and I was in a state where, where sports gambling is legal, so I was keeping an eye on the odds a bit more than I normally do. And I was kind of fascinated for the first few weeks of the season, Bournemouth has been this massive underdog like way bigger than they were two years ago under Eddie Howe, way bigger than I'm used to seeing even newly promoted teams. They were like 25 to one to win at Manchester City, which is wild. I think it's been kind of the view that this is a team that is not ready for the top flight, that is not strong enough. You see all the signings that Nottingham Forest are making. Bournemouth haven't really done that. They've kind of come up with the team that they went down with and you're right. I think there's some concern. I know that Scott Parker's probably agitating for signings. That doesn't always go well, particularly when we do that publicly in the eyes of ownership. And that is a real concern. There are certainly other candidates. You look at Frank Lampard at Everton. You look at Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa. Uh, there are a couple of candidates right now that you can definitely say are on the chopping block. But in, in my view, I think you have to look at Scott Parker right now and anytime a team loses 9-0. Now look, Southampton, I, I think, almost did it back-to-back -back years under Ralph Hasenhutl, right. and they figured it out. But I think that this this could potentially be uh, a, a huge response needed here uh, from Bournemouth. Yeah, and I do wonder about, particular, in particular, Gerrard uh, and Lampard, do you think who they are, the names that they are, might actually keep them in their jobs longer than maybe even would typically be the case? Um. I, I think in some ways more scrutiny comes to them, weirdly. Hmm. I know that like they, a lot of people think that they get an easy ride, but I think it is Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa. It is Frank Lampard's Everton. Um, now, maybe you can make the argument that, you know, in a, in a relegation dogfight, Lampard might have gone sooner so they can get uh, a firefighter and, and bring in a Sam Allardyce or something like that, but they wanted to give Lampard his chance. But I, I think that Steven Gerrard probably deserves a bit more time. I think he has certainly achieved a lot more than Frank Lampard did, in my opinion. You know, got Rangers to win a league title when it seemed like no one was going to do that off of Celtics. So it's not like he doesn't arrive with some pedigree. However, I do think that in some ways their their status invites more scrutiny. I don't know if that keeps them in the job longer or shorter, but I do, I do know that when we had this conversation, there might be other coach like David Moyes might have been someone who, if he were anybody else, could have been a subject to that conversation, although he, he did win his first game today. But I do think that it invites more scrutiny in a weird way. I think there are a lot of people that want to believe that those guys aren't qualified to be managing in the top flight, that there are better coaches that should have their jobs, uh, mainly the people who kind of follow the continent, follow a lot of things around the world and go, well, I don't. I, if, if not for their status in the game, they wouldn't have these jobs. Um, but I do think that it invites more scrutiny. I do think in particular, the English media protects Lampard in a That's, way that actually I, I, agree. I, I haven't seen with Gerard. but I, the English media is so funny with Lampard. Even when yeah. he was the Chelsea manager. Yeah, I mean, it was always like, look at, what, look at what he's done for Mason Mount and all these young players. And look, he deserved a lot of that credit. But as, as Barney Rone said, 
Uh, he, he loves to say this on the Guardian podcast. Thomas Tuchel appeared to have fixed their defense in like one 20-minute training session. And they were a completely different team and won the Champions League. Now, to be fair, Tuchel is not kicked on. And like maybe you can make an argument there were bigger problems than Frank Lampard at the time. But I do think that uh, he, he definitely got a lot. He was overpraised a significant amount for the job he did at Chelsea. I love it. Even when Chelsea won the Champions League, all of these English media were like, Frank Lampard deserves some credit for this. Yeah, you can't doubt the foundation laid down. I might, I might, I might have said that a few times while hosting Chelsea Mike. Chelsea oh, Mike. My <laughs> goodness, right in front up there. Like so. Okay, so my next question here is: How good is Arsenal? Because Arsenal is the only team with a perfect record after four match days in the Premier League. And I am looking at who Arsenal has played so far in these four games. They won at Crystal Palace, which, okay, I think Crystal Palace is a decent team um, to open the season. Arsenal won 4-2 at home against Leicester. Leicester is really struggling right now. Um, Arsenal won 3-0 at Bournemouth. So we just talked about Bournemouth, so whatever. And Arsenal ends up winning 2-1 to one at home against a Fulham team that is better than people were expecting, by the way. Tim Ream! Yeah! <laughs> I, saw, I saw Stu Holden is leading the campaign to get him back in the national team. Someone finally did it. <laughs> oh, shoot. I'm trying to get Tim Ream on this podcast. I think that would be a good interview. Um, captain of the team, by the way. Yeah. But So Arsenal has had those four games, and then in the coming weeks, Arsenal will play... Aston Villa at yep. home midweek, so that should be a win. They are at Man United, who we still don't know how good they are uh, after that. We're going to skip the Europa League. Uh, and then Arsenal has Everton at home, should be a win. Another Europa League game. And then at Brentford, should be a win. Mm -hmm. And so then you get to October 1st, Arsenal at home against rival Tottenham. And honestly, I think that's the first tough opponent Sorry, Man United fans, for Arsenal <laughs> this season. Here, here's why I think that that necessarily doesn't matter. I get your point, which is that they have not played the toughest opposition. Although I do think, in totality, you go back to that opening day, Arsenal handled Palace so comprehensively that I almost started to doubt like whether you know Crystal Palace can be fine, was losing Conor Gallagher too much, but they gave... Liverpool a game, they got a point off him, and they gave Man City a game this weekend uh, going 2-0 up uh, on Saturday, and then Man City's Erling Holland with a hat trick uh, was absolutely impressive in getting that result back. However, like beating Palace away, that's a really good result. Yeah, I, no, think okay. even, I think even Fulham this season is a decent result. The reason why I think that you can't necessarily look at their opposition is because their issues in recent years have been taking care of these sorts of games. And I, I, I went back through their results from last season. It, towards the end of the year, lost away at Newcastle, lost away at Southampton, lost away at Crystal Palace, drew nil-nil with Burnley, lost away at Everton, which looks like a terrible result in retrospect, <laughs> drew at home with Crystal Palace, drew away at Brighton, lost at Brentford. Like, you go on and on, and those are the reasons why they don't end up in the, in the Champions League. Any one of those results turn, and they could have been in ahead of Spurs, and that's... In some ways, in, in weird ways, the games that, for me, prove sort of championship medal. Like, can you consistently beat the teams below you? I remember when Antonio Conte's Chelsea won the league. You go, you go back and look at, through their record. Against the top teams, they weren't brilliant, but they absolutely hammered anyone who was below that elite tier of teams. And so I do think it's a big deal that you take care of business in that way and don't necessarily quote Arsenal it up, right? And that's and that's what sort of gets held against these teams is whenever they don't beat these teams, it's that res that result was very Spursy. That result was very Arsenally. And I think that to not only win, but I, I guess this weekend they weren't terribly comprehensive of beating Fulham. Needed a late comeback in order to to, to finish that victory. I do think it is really important that Arsenal take care of these results if they're going to take a step forward. So in my opinion, it's significant. That being said. If we're really saying that they're going to challenge Manchester City, they're top of the table right now, they're going to have to beat some of these teams and really show in European and in domestic competition that they can beat the top teams if they're going to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is all about how good is Arsenal. They're perfect after four match days. I 
if we're asking the question, how realistic is it that Arsenal wins the league? There's 34 more games, by the way. Um, I don't think over the long haul, this Arsenal team is as good as Man City. I just don't. Um, that said, do I think this Arsenal team is a Champions League qualifying team? Probably, so far, based on what we've seen. I've really enjoyed it. I don't want to like rain on the parade of our Arsenal fans listening, but like, I just feel like maybe th that's why the question is there for me, is like the opponents, for the most part so far, and actually for the next few weeks, are not that hard. But look, if you keep getting three points every week, uh, <laughs> that's obviously a great sign. This is a better Arsenal team, and I am actually more in the corner of Mikel Arteta having watched the all or nothing. Um, I, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. It's a bit all over the, uh, all over the place, the reaction to that show. There's some where it's like, <laughs> look at this clown copying Pep Guardiola and drawing concentric circles and all kinds of stuff. Like the motivation tactics uh, can be uh, sometimes lampooned, but also I think he has shown a real medal in dealing with issues like with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. So uh, in some ways it is a real vulnerability uh, to put yourself out there like that and have your every coaching move analyzed. Jose Mourinho doesn't care. He's he's formed, he's experienced, he believes in what he does. But for a first-time manager who's still learning and still uh, is not always getting it right, uh, to, to open yourself up to that, it's a it, it can be uh, really revealing. And I think uh, for Arteta, it's kind of gone both ways. <sighs> Also want to talk about Leeds United, uh, first loss of the season for Jesse Marsh's team at Brighton, which is in itself nothing to be ashamed of. Brighton's right near the top of the league on 10 points after four match days. And Leeds, by the way, is still on seven points. So I think they're in fifth place, um, which is probably better than what we we're expecting to this point from Leeds. Um, in this game, however, um, Leeds wasn't as sharp, I thought. And... Rodrigo in particular, who had had four goals in the first three games, um, league-wise, you know, not as sharp. Uh, Brendan Aronson was okay. Uh, Tyler Adams was okay. And it was just interesting to me that Brighton sort of dominated this game in the first half, but it was still 0-0. In the second half, Leeds started actually creating some things, creating some danger and opportunities, and uh, Sinistera really should have finished an opportunity he had right in front of the goal. But even then, Brighton gets the goal and holds on for the 1-0. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a quick uh, turnaround, I guess you could say, for, Everton, or, or for Leeds because they have Everton coming up on Tuesday at home, a game that you really need to get three points out, out of. So you can kind of forget this Brighton game very quickly and get the momentum back again. But a bit of a reminder that, you know, Leeds is, is still a work in progress. Yeah, it's going to take a second, and they're going to achieve that consistency in a different way. I'll actually be curious because uh, I, I was I was going through. I had Inter Miami away at uh, Red Bull New York this weekend, and their home record this year is actually not that great. It's among the worst in Major League Soccer, despite the fact that they're top uh, in in the top four of the MLS Eastern Conference. And if you go back, Jesse Marsh, when he was the coach of New York, uh, was. Very good at home. The Red Bulls were actually the best home team in the league since Red Bull Arena opened until like early 2020. And they were able to win home games. And a lot of that is because the atmosphere, I think, was probably a little bit better then. And I'll be curious, because of the nature of how raucous Ellen Road is, that they're able to use that energy to really disrupt their opponents a bit more than they can away from home. Now, some of that is real credit to Brighton because... Leeds were able to disrupt Chelsea, but a very defined way of playing. A lot of that has to do with keeping possession, and they're very good at it. They know how to dominate the ball, dominate games. They did it to Spurs. But for whatever reason, they couldn't do it against Leeds. I wonder if some of that is home versus road, and a lot of that is you just have to give genuine credit to Brighton. They're joint top of the Premier League. Um, they still don't score enough goals, but they've only conceded one all season long. And might this be the year where they turn that XG advantage into a genuine uh, push towards maybe the European places, getting in towards either the conference or into the Europa League or, hell, a, a surprise run like Leicester in recent seasons and actually a genuine challenge for a Champions League place because we know that from the top down, that club knows exactly what it wants to be and in some ways Leeds wants to get there and they're building towards it. But I think Brighton, by virtue of the fact that Graham Potter has been in that job for four years now, I think, they 
completely know who they want to be and can execute it almost at all times. And, and there is a similarity here, right, with uh, Brighton and Leeds in the sense that they sold two important players for big money in the transfer window. So Kukurea got sold to Chelsea, Yves Bissoma to Spurs. Uh, one of my favorites is Neil Mopay, by the way, and yeah. he, he has been sold, but that he was not wanted anymore at, at Brighton, it seemed like, even though one of the best shithousers in the league. I, I think we ought to acknowledge <laughs> that. So I've always had an affection for him. Um, and then with Leeds, they sold Calvin Phillips. Um, they sold Rafinha to big teams. And so I, I love it when teams that are not top six teams in the Premier League, like Leeds, like Brighton, can make those types of sales and still be getting off the next season to a good start, as both of those teams have. And that's why it's about infrastructure. It's not necessary. Yes, the players play a massive role and you have to reinvest well. And Brighton, in some ways, I think they they did a little bit different than Leeds where it kind of all happened in one window. They sell Rafinha, but then they use it to fund the Aronson purchase and, and the Sinistera purchase and all that. And then they sell Calvin Phillips and they use it to fund uh, the, the Mark Rilka purchase and they've made five or six buys. Whereas Brighton... They haven't really done a huge amount of business in this window. They've just been succession building for a long time. You think about the departure of Yves Basuma. They brought in Moises Caicedo a year ago. And I remember when he was bought, some of the people in England were like, who's this guy? Why are they buying from Ecuador? This is kind of weird. But he was sought after by a lot of MLS clubs and some bigger clubs as well. But Brighton clearly established the pathway for him saying, next year, we're going to sell this guy. You're going to play. And we believe in your ability to fit in the system. You take the six months that he doesn't play to coach him up in the system. You plug him in. Voila, it works. And that's what good clubs do. And it's why I've always kind of wondered, like, I remember, you know, like you hear the conversation about Crystal Palace. Well, if they sell Wilfred Zaha, they're done for. It's over. He's worth 100 million pounds because he is the singular reason that they will stay in the division. And the same thing with Jack Grealish at Villa and the same thing with Declan Rice at West Ham. These assets that are worth huge amounts of money. And you think about how Leicester have reinvested money. Now, this has kind of been the year where that, they haven't been able to reinvest and, and continue to add, but good teams can take huge amounts of money and turn it into a lot. Leicester sold Harry Maguire and Riyad Mahrez and turned it into a Champions League contending team. Uh, so that's what, in my view, big or good clubs that operate outside of the top six do. You reinvest money that you get from your top players. By the way, Brighton is like Ecuador Central. Yeah. Stupinian coming in from Villarreal, who's gone right into the starting lineup and I thought was pretty good, as was Mo Moises Caicedo uh, the other day, too. So uh, kind of interesting to see how those pipelines develop. Um, let's talk about transfers because you mentioned Leicester. Um, few names have been in here-we-go territory over the last few days. I guess the biggest one is probably Anthony from Ajax to... Manchester United, and this is fascinating to me from sort of a media perspective. Our friend uh, Fabrizio Romano, who's just become a giant in the last few years in terms of reporting, took things to a new level. He had an exclusive interview with Anthony in the last few days <laughs> in which Anthony's like speaking out saying, I want to go, I want to leave Ajax, and they're going to give you a lot of money, Ajax, please let me go. And finally, it seems like that's happened. Uh, 100 million euros, which is wild. It makes you wonder, like, is Anthony this good? Is he going to be that good for Brazil in the World Cup? I mean, like, seriously? I guess it's a little bit about what he's going to become, but um, it's also about what he is now because Man United needs help now. And uh, that whole thing is sort of fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, people look at his just sort of raw numbers in the Eredivisie with Ajax, and last year it was eight goals and four assists. The year before it was nine goals and eight assists. And all of a sudden, that's an 85 million pound player or 100 million euro player, depending on the currency you report the transfer in. Yeah, for me, the reason why, beyond the fact that it's a crazy amount of money and you want, for me, a completely proven, you want to sign like Mbappe if you're, if you're, if you're paying 85 million, Erling Haaland if you're paying 85 million. But the reason why... I don't necessarily like it is that it seems like Eric Ten Hag has only gone out and signed players that he's familiar with, right? You look at Ericsson, Malasia, it just feels like too many, Lissandro Martinez, now this, it's just, can we move Ajax here? And I think it requires something different. It, for me, requires Ten Hag to be a little bit more imaginative. I also think they spent a ton of money on Jadon Sancho, 
They have Marcus Rashford in the club. They have Anthony Martial in the club. They have Anthony Alanga in the club. I've never thought that Manchester United have lacked in forward areas. I think that they've lacked in the ideas, in the creativity, in the system that generates goal-scoring chances, right? For me, if you look at the very top level, all these players are amazing. It's about can you set up an infrastructure and a combination of players that creates goal-scoring chances regularly? And I think that Manchester United has struggled in the post-Alex Ferguson era to get that done, whether it was Van Hal, Mourinho, top-down, they just have not been able to create goal-scoring chances regularly enough to score the level of goals that Liverpool and Man City do. And that's a system thing. And so I guess you can make an argument that if players know a system, they can execute it. But my feeling is that Manchester United have had enough in the attack. They need more in midfield. They probably need better fullbacks. They need center backs that can play with the ball. And so for me, spending $85 million on a player who I don't know I'm going to get 15 to 20 goals from, that I don't necessarily think represents a huge upgrade on another player you spent $75 million on and Jaden Sancho, who's probably not going to play as much as a result. I just don't think if you're spending that kind of money that this is like, I'm surprised that they were this level of tunnel vision with this player. Perhaps they see something that I don't. Yeah, I, I'm skeptical. Whenever you pay that much money for someone who's really not proven at this point, I think there's going to be a Nine Brazil lot. caps. Yeah, and he's going to have a lot of pressure on him now coming into this Man United situation immediately. So that'll be interesting for people like us to watch. But I, I, I just think if I'm Anthony, that's that's a lot. Uh, however, like, like probably, if, if I were paying that amount or something close to that, I would have gone for someone like Jude Bellingham. I know, like again, not a player that necessarily creates chances, but if all of a sudden the base of my midfield goes from Fred and McTominay to Casemiro and Jude Bellingham, that feels like a combination that can lead to that chance creation that we're talking about and take that next step as a group. I just think that they need another player in midfield. If they're going to go 38 games with Christian Eriksen being the player from deep-lying areas that's going to be the singular inspiration, it just feels like too much to ask. I'm with you on that. Um, other moves, Wesley Fofana from Leicester to Chelsea. Uh, this was sort of a drawn-out saga as well. Yeah. I, I love how, the, like, some of these, like, as with Anthony sort of coming out publicly, like, Fofana's, like, putting up Instagram posts and then deleting them about, I just want to go to Chelsea. By the way, speaking of, did you see what Serginio Dest posted on Instagram today? No. So, Serginio Dest, he might have deleted it. Yeah, he did. I saw I saw a thing. Now, I, I, as always, with the internet, you have to be careful. But I saw a thing about how Sergio Dest was almost like war warming up in the bowels of the arena, in, in the bowels of the Camp Nou, because he wasn't playing or he wasn't picked for the squad. I, I, I wonder if I was had by the internet. But either way, I saw this, and it's just like, it's another step in, you just have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. You don't know if Dest has been told, you're not part of my plans. Yeah, he wasn't part of the squad today for Barcelona. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, you just, you don't know what this stuff, I mean, I feel well, like, I, I feel like, you know, with Fafana, it's one where you're trying to get to a big club, you do it by any means necessary, but it, it seems like Anthony talking to Fabrizio Romano, it's by any means necessary, you get the move that you need or want. It is interesting, right? Because I even remember when Clint Dempsey moved to Spurs from Fulham back in the day, and he was like Fulham's best player for a long period of time, and then he was forced to like train alone and stuff. And like, it was just a really weird situation before he finally got that move made on deadline day. Um, with Dest, here's what we do know. We know that he was not part of the squad for Barcelona's match day. Um you're showing me right now. Oh, uh, that looks like his uh, Serginio's IG. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, it's very. There's a check mark there, and it seemed like doing drills in the bowels of the Camp Nou. So, which is a little wild, but um, you know, also too, like Xavi came out this week and didn't leave anything to the imagination. He was like, "Desk knows our stance. He knows where he is," and essentially, the message is we're going to sell you, we're not going to use you. And that's where we are. And it's a really ruthless business, obviously. Um, the thing I'm struck by, and maybe this is with Dutch players, the reason Serginio Dest went to Barcelona in the first place was because Ronald Koeman was the coach. And the second that Ronald Koeman was out and Xavi was in, 
then Dest was going to be on thin ice. And so, so much comes down to, does a certain coach trust you? And now we're seeing all these Ajax guys who played for Eric Ten Hag at Ajax going to Manchester United to play for Eric Ten Hag, who is Dutch. And so I guess we've certainly seen reports that Dest might be wanted by Manchester United and their Dutch coach. And it, like... And we've also seen examples of Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson going to Leeds to play for an American coach. I mean, is it is it that simple? Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily just about nationality. It's also about system, right? Like, in theory, Sergino Dest fits a certain style of play. The thing that I'm confused about is why he doesn't fit at Barcelona. Because it's not that much of a departure from whatever you believe the Dutch style of play to be in the modern era. I don't think it's that big of a departure, but for whatever reason, he hasn't earned the manager's trust. It was because at the beginning, as you mentioned, it was a struggle for him, and Danny Alves was brought in to kind of steady the ship. Then towards the end of the season, Desk came back in, and I remember reading some public comments that Xavi was fairly uh, supportive of him, but then again, he's out in the cold. Today, it was Jules Kunde who started, uh, now the now-registered Jules Kunde uh, into Barcelona, uh, who started at right back today. So, I, I don't I, I I don't understand that one. I don't know why he's been sort of kicked to the curb at Barcelona because a young signing, a value signing, but I wonder if in some ways Barcelona, if you think about all the ways that they've ruthlessly gotten rid of anyone who was there from previous regimes or re- regimes, it seems like anyone who we bought on a discount because that's who was available to us, we're now a new club. We're getting rid of all of them and, and we're we're starting a new era. And it just seems harsh on those players uh that were brought brought in in that time. Is it uncharitable to say that Dest isn't a very good defender and that's why Barcelona doesn't want to keep him? Um, now, Jules Conde is certainly a better defender, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, Trent Alexander Arnold has gotten a lot of criticism for how bad he is as a defender in this season. Like, a lot of fullbacks, air quotes, in modern times aren't necessarily great defenders. Um, now, that certainly is part of it. I mean, Dest has at times been exposed, and if you're an opposing team and you're going, you know, I'm going to attack this part of Barcelona. Dest might be one of the things you pick out and it might be something he's going to have to develop. And it is an interesting part of his career progression because, it, I mean, that has been part of the national team picture. I remember when they played in the Nations League finals in Denver and they played him at left back. There were times where it's like, I think they have to get Dest off the pitch. I'm not sure he can start because of how badly he was being exposed at times. But I... I, I don't I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, as Landon Donovan says on Landon Wall and Woody on the road to Qatar, I don't have the full context. I've learned that expression from him. Uh, he, it, it's a it's a key one to learn in the uh, in the coaching lexicon. It, it would appear is I don't have the full context. I don't know. <sighs> I like it. Um, Alexander Isak signs with Newcastle United. Had a nice stretch at Real Sociedad in Spain. I, Isak is a very interesting player to me because I did a book chapter on uh, the former Dortmund sporting director, Michael Zork, and his amazing record of buy low and sell high. And even the guys that sort of Dortmund has not has screwed up on it for a while under Zork, like Isak was one of those guys to an extent, like they signed him when Polisic was there and got him for very little money. And he didn't, do much and eventually they sold him and Sociedad gets him and only then does he become a stud good with the Swedish national team as well it's just interesting that in that certain era Dortmund even the guys they missed on they really didn't miss on right they, they were sort of on the right track they were <laughs> on the right track uh to go and get uh Alexander Isak but it's a massive amount of money I think it was reported at 65 million euros pounds I forget which one uh but Either way, I find it interesting that Newcastle are still kind of half the old team, half the new team. Right. And Eddie Howe has done a great job of building up a player like Joe Linton, who was completely out in the cold under previous management. They've been they've become a lot stronger as a result. Alan Sam Maximan is a more consistent performer, although sometimes is frustrating with his inability to pass the ball. As he uh, there was one clip that went viral today of him like dribbling around nine players <laughs> before eventually getting tackled off. Although he scored a cracking winner, it's why you have him on the pitch or equalizer. I'm sorry uh, yeah. for for Newcastle. And I also think when you look at this signing, I'm interesting in how I'm interested in how he fits with. The current players, particularly Callum Wilson, who I think is starting really well, certainly cover for a player who occasionally gets hurt. And I think it might also be an acknowledgement that 
they probably got it wrong with the signing of Chris Wood from Burnley, uh, who they bought for $25 million and, and has barely scored in his time there. So they're still, in some ways, partly the team that didn't have any money, that was trying to piece together a team that could stay in the Premier League, and partly a team that is heading towards a future of competing for Champions League football because they have Saudi investment backing them. I do think back to the first years of Man City being under UAE ownership. And I think there's some similarities to where Newcastle is right now and trying to figure things out. You remember when Man City got Robinho? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of that era, you know? And, and maybe some of these guys... Also, mixed in there was like a Vincent Company signing for yeah. an oddly cheap amount of money. Yeah. So my guess is we may have some of these signings by Newcastle that in the long term work out. Uh, some that don't, and and we'll see what those end up being. Um, Want to wrap up with Austin LAFC. Austin drilling LAFC at home on Friday night, and these are the top two teams in the West. LAFC has been the best team in the league, and Austin is no joke. They continue to show us that they are a real candidate to win the league title this year. Well, and it's interesting because it, we've talked before about how the regular season doesn't provide enough like this, enough narrative, yeah. really. Um, and I think it's fascinating what we leave this game feeling, which is that LAFC are still the favorites to win the Supporter Shield, although Philadelphia Union are making a run at it. Yeah. My God, are they swatting away teams. Uh, they're heading for an MLS record goal difference at the pace that they're on. They're just smashing teams who are not as good at them. Uh, I, I think they beat Colorado Rapids by six goals to nil at the weekend. But... With LAFC playing as well as they have, it still leaves some room for doubt. And it's not just this season's narrative arc. It's the narrative arc of their life in Major League Soccer because they were tremendous under Bob Bradley, but they couldn't win single elimination games. They went out in the U.S. Open Cup. They went out in the MLS Cup playoffs. They could, even at times in the El Trafico Derby, which is this sort of you know one-off occasions, they weren't able to win often enough. And that still exists. LAFC went out of the Open Cup again this year. And you sort of start to wonder, can they win the one game that they have to win? Yeah, they have this incredible depth of squad and the players they bring off the bench are better than any team in the history of the league, probably. However, when it comes time to beat a team in the MLS postseason, whether it's Real Salt Lake or Minnesota United or towards the top of the conference like Austin, can they beat them in a one-off? And when they get smashed like this, it does leave you thinking, is there a day, like, will they have their day where they don't, at home, get it together. I mean, they have a route to win MLS Cup at home, but you just sort of have that sense of doubt. And I think Austin, who have one tremendous player and a system that is really working in Driussi and the overall system around Josh Wolf, um, they can absolutely do it. And what a marker for them. And what a cool second season to have. I wonder, I, I, it feels like Austin are having their moment where 10 years from now, that building is going to be sold out because of what they've done in these first two seasons, building great atmospheres and then winning games like this. Austin is a market that is very much here to stay. And I'm glad I can enjoy them a little bit more than I would have if, if they had taken Columbus's position. I don't think they would be nearly as fun and an emotional favorite as had they fully taken Columbus's position in the league. No, that's fair. And at this point, I think we've got to compare Austin a little bit to Atlanta and how their second season, they were so good and the leap that Austin has made just in terms of performance on the field from year one to year two is absolutely incredible. And there's enough games now, enough data points that this is real. You know, they've earned this. And so just a huge moment for them to beat LAFC. I'm actually going to Austin in a couple of weeks speaking at UT. Uh, my friend Michael McCambridge's class. Can you believe they're teaching a class at UT on like the World Cup? Not, well, I, w first off, where was that class when I was in college? Can you imagine? Holy shit, that would have been amazing to have a class on the World Cup in college. So I'm going to speak to the, uh, this class, and then it's a midweek MLS week, so I'm going to actually see an Austin FC home game, I think against Real Salt Lake, but I'm really looking forward to it. I've been to Austin once for a game, but that was the U.S. men's national team's World Cup qualifier against Jamaica last October, the last game Ricardo Pepe scored in, club or country. <laughs> Oh, no. Um, yeah. Uh, which brings me to our last topic, which is, I wrote a column about this on Friday on my site, um, the U.S. men's national team number nine situation. And it's an interesting one, right? Because 
You've got guys who are now making a real case in terms of what they're doing, scoring at their club level, um, whether it's Jordan Pifak, Josh Sargent. Um, you've still got Ricardo Pepe, but hasn't scored a goal for club or country since last October. Um, and the questions right now, you know, where do you know, Brandon Vasquez, where does he fit in with all of this? And I think at this point, you know, I ranked these guys in order. Like, I think Ferreira is the guy who is most likely to be the starter for the U.S., and that's what matters the most at the World Cup. But behind him, it gets pretty interesting. And, you know, I compared it to 2010 when you had Herc Gomez and Robbie Finley uh, come in, Edson Buttle. It was just wide open, and I feel like it's very similar now. I guess my only question is, and now, in that World Cup, club form did matter. But I don't know necessarily if club form matters now. And not, not now, meaning generally, but now as it relates this particular situation. Because, yes, Jordan Sibachu, Jordan Pifak, is scoring goals you know, in, in the Bundesliga for Union Berlin. And Haji Wright is scoring in Turkey. And you mentioned all the MLS guys. Uh, Jeremy Bobasi doesn't even get looked at anymore, but Brandon Vasquez has been, you know, given shouts for U.S. men's national team for months now. He scored again at the weekend in the Derby. And you, you'd see all these traits and you'd think that they would make sense. But is it too late in the day to start trying to tinker with strikers that work in the system? I know it's going to sound crazy given the fact that you mentioned he hasn't scored a goal for 10 months, but Ricardo Pepe at least has fit and scored goals at times in this national team. Like, do you almost completely disregard form and say, look, I saw Jordan P. Fuck in this national team. It didn't work. I saw Josh Sargent in this national team. Didn't really work. I saw ha uh, Haji Wright in the national team. Didn't really work. At some point, do you take the data of how guys played, albeit in limited samples with the national team, and just not care at all that, yes, they're scoring goals and they have a bunch of fun in their domestic leagues, but when they come into the national team, the context is completely different, so it won't even necessarily matter. I hear you on all of that. I, I do feel like it's just, you got to go by feel to an extent. And I do think there is something to Burhalter's system being a bit more complex than most national team managers' systems. And I do wonder if that's partly why Jordan Pifak hasn't worked well in the Burhalter system. But then there were moments like at Mexico where he just missed the sitter and you're like, yeah. ah. Um, and Sargent, you know, hasn't had many opportunities, to be honest. So... I don't know. I, I would like to see these guys called in for the September games and see how they do in training and, you know, like see how they do in the games, depending on how they do in training. I mean, it's, I just feel like Ricardo Pepe at this point, and it bums me out to say this because I like Ricardo Pepe a lot and he's a great story. And I think he's got a good future. He's still just 19 years old. Uh, he was sold for $20 million, which is wild. His teammates don't seem to want to pass him the ball in Augsburg. It's, it's a very strange situation. He just has to find a way through it. But I don't think he has a birthright to having a spot on the team in Qatar. And at this point, he hasn't scored a goal since October. So like, I, I just feel like it's unlikely that he'll make the team. Agreed. And and I don't want to make it sound like I was making an argument on behalf of Ricardo Pepe. What I'm saying is, is do you make an argument on behalf of institutional knowledge on yeah. playing in the national team, succeeding in the national team context and the national team context being completely different than a club context and a, a system. And by the way, Josh Sargent has done, you talk about fighting through. If he continues in this sort of scoring form, it will be a remarkable testament to you try and stick it out. Yeah. You made a bad move for a year. And it seemed like this second season, Timu Puki continued to start the season up top for Norwich, and he looked like he was going to play as a defensive winger even more, but then pushed and somehow earned a starting uh, starting role and was able to lead the line, created chances, and now he's getting goals. And so maybe, you know, you give him, you continue to give players chances if they continue to score goals in other contexts. I just think we're so late in the day that Ferreira will definitely start on the opening day, in my view, unless Berhalter goes to a completely different system with playing false nines and all that, which again, would be a crazy amount of experimentation to do on the eve of the World Cup. Or um, he changes his mind about picking players in form. In my opinion, I think you trust what you've seen in the national team. 
I know it's CONCACAF. I know it's different. But you trust the fact that you didn't call it Josh Sargent after September. You trust that you didn't really pick Jordan Pifuck after you gave him chances in big games. You didn't really pick Haji Wright, or, or you might not pick Haji Wright after he had a, a bit of a rough summer in those four games that they played. Like, you kind of take what you saw and trust it and only pick players that have succeeded in this particular context. It might be too late to experiment. We'll see if they go with Brandon Vasquez or even Georgie Mihailovic in the midfield positions uh, and, and make different decisions about personnel. But I think you have to trust what you've seen so far in the national team context. Good stuff, my friend. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Pat Noonan. Our guest now is the head coach of FC Cincinnati. In his first year, Pat Noonan has his team in the MLS playoff race after Cincinnati had finished last in the MLS standings for the previous three years in a row. This is a team that has been fun to watch this season. Pat, congratulations on what you've been doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. Um, lots to talk about here, but I'll start by just being straight up and asking what in your mind have been the keys this season to putting Cincinnati in a position to challenge for the playoffs? I think um, a combination of things. I think early on uh, in understanding you know, how we wanted to play was certainly going to be important. It was never going to look perfect uh, and still doesn't look perfect. But um, you know what that was going to look like and maybe some of the differences uh, individually and collectively from you know a previous year or two, um, I think adding some culture pieces was important. Um, so some experienced um, MLS players that have been a part of you know ch- championship teams and had success. I think that was very important. Um, and I think you know putting players in a position um, certainly to to succeed and bring out you know the best in their individual talents and and how that he- helps the collective. I thought, um, you know, that was a priority with certainly some very talented pieces. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to have a very uh, good staff, a support staff around me uh, to help me along the way in, in my first go around. And we're doing this interview on Thursday, August 25th. The news today is that Brandon Vasquez has signed a new contract with the club. What's the significance of that? And how would you describe Brandon's role in the team this season? Well, the significance is we keep a, a very important piece of of our group, uh, somebody that certainly contributed in many ways to helping our team be in a better position than it was, you know, before the year started. Uh, so we're very pleased to to have you know um, rewarded Brandon with uh, a well deserved contract extension and uh, you know and pay raise. He's uh, an incredible character, something that embodies everything that we want here at the club. Um, with his on-field performance, with his team-first mentality, uh, with his um, locker room presence, uh, he's been outstanding, and he's and he's a hungry player. He's he's not settling um, with where he's at. I think that's why he's had the season he has, is because he's looking to improve. He's constantly asking questions of of what he can do better, how he can be more efficient, you know, with and without the ball. Um, so. A lot of credit is on the character and the mentality of Brandon and, and where he's at in his uh, development and and certainly on-field production. We've got a bit of an unusual situation with the U.S. men's national team. It's a World Cup year, and nobody has really taken the center forward position in a major way um, for this U.S. team during qualifying, even though Brandon Vasquez hasn't had time with the national team, really. Do you think he should make the World Cup team or at least have a really good shot at it? I think with the form that he's in and if he continues in this way, uh, he certainly is right there in the conversation. I understand the the, the bias in that comment. Um, you know, you're seeing the uh, the production short term right now with, you know, with uh, our number nines around the world and, and scoring goals. You know, Brandon's in that mix. I think you're seeing... Uh, a lot of players that in that position sense uh, an opportunity in a couple months' time, and certainly Brandon's one of them. So um, I, I think Grant, if he continues in the form that he's in, you know, just in terms of goal scoring alone, because that's such an important part of that position, that his name will will continue to be brought up in you know the coming months. Um, and certainly, I think there's still things uh, at the international level that if 
if he wants to uh, make an even stronger case, you know, we can improve on on some areas, um, you know, with and without the ball to to help continue to you know make him a a, a stronger player and a more complete player. But uh, I, I think it would be you know silly to to not have his name involved. Um, in the coming months if his form continues. When a team has had as much losing as Cincinnati had had in the previous three seasons, what did you do when you arrived to say, this is going to be a new culture inside this team? The message early on was was to try, try to create a belief, but uh, a belief that was you know, realistic and not um, giving these players in this group, staff members, everybody involved, a false sense of reality. It was it was not going to be perfect early on. You know, we're going to lose games. We're, we're still trying to build relationships and figure each other out. This is our first go go at it, you know, with with our particular group. So there has to be a, a level of um, open mindedness in terms of new ideas and and. Um, and failures short term, you know, as we work through some things, whether it was, you know, again, how we want to play, whether it was expectations and accountability. You know, we talked a lot about it, those expectations and accountability um, in the early days. Um, and and I think players along the way have, you know, deserve a lot of credit for, for you know, being willing to, to take on new information and new ideas uh, and being challenged in, in ways where, yeah, they were going to be uncomfortable at times, but we were always going to be, and I was always going to be honest with them as far as uh, what I felt, you know, and, and trying to to not just look at wins and losses, but you know, how are we progressing and, and improving as a as a group, um, with the understanding that winning is important. Winning is important for this club, based on what you said the the previous seasons and and not having success. So. In this, you know, early um, phase, how can we find results when we're not at our best, when our opponents won't be at their best? Um, and I think, despite you know starting the season slow, we were two and five after seven games. Um, the players still believed. We we still believed. I think we were able to um, find ways to win games that put us on a stretch of four wins and you know got us above five hundred. And I think early on that was really important. In, in terms of the belief and the confidence of the group. Um, and so, you know, we're sitting here today still, you know, 500. So uh, I think there's been a lot of improvement in different ways, you know, than just the results. But early on, it was just going to have to be that everybody was was willing to take on new ideas and new information, but the importance of trust in the process. Um, I know you hear that all the time, but if we're going to, if we're going to do anything special, if we're going to, um, have a season that's just not about um, subtle improvements. If we want to make big improvements, then there has to be uh, this willingness to um, to be open to new ideas and and failures, but find ways to push each other and find ways to um, create an environment where we could survive uh, moments of struggle. And I think we got that from the players. Uh, in different ways and, and and some slower than others, because I think we're seeing progress from individuals that early on, you know, really struggled. And and so those players uh, <clears throat> buying in more to certain things has helped our group uh, become more complete. Again, putting results aside, I think we're much stronger now than we were, uh, you know, even two months ago. Chris Albright is the general manager there. How would you describe the relationship you and Chris have built over the years and, and how does it work day to day now? Well, there's a, a level of trust that most, I would say, first time GMs and coaches uh, don't have. Our, our previous working relationship uh, was strong. And so we were aligned in so many things before this even started. Uh, that helped us, you know, hit the ground running in, in decision making, whether it was, um, you know, players to fit, you know, a certain style or culture pieces. Um, those conversations were just easier and quicker and more efficient uh, early on. And so um, that that previous working relationship was so vital to um, things moving along early in ways where we could find maybe success quicker than expected. And, uh, you know, the day to day is we're He's right next to me. We're, we're talking all the time, and uh, whether it's about training, whatever about our players, whether it's about how we can improve um, the roster, uh, it's daily, and it's 
and it's very organic. And I, you know, I certainly appreciate that component of it because there's no, there's no BS with Chris. You know, we can be upfront with each other. We don't have to try to to please each other. And so I think that really helps in the day to day and 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 again the efficiency of how we work. Before you took this job, you had worked as an assistant to Bruce Arena and Jim Curtin. Are there any particular aspects of how they approach things that you've admired and maybe taken on a bit in your own work as a head coach? Yeah, good question. Different models, different philosophies, but what I will say is uh, both coaches um, have a way of dealing with pressure. You know, this is a high pressure environment. You know, when you look at just the expectations, wins, losses, um, how the league has grown and now how, you know, we're perceived as coaches, as players, as a league. And to see that how they manage the day to day, you know, when things weren't going well. And then, and then that's not just wins and losses. That's behind the scenes, all the stuff that you just don't see or hear about. They managed it in, in, in a really um, impressive way to kind of put out fires before it got out of control and, and manage the players, manage their staff in ways where everybody was always moving in the same direction. And I think that's a uh, something that can be said for Bruce and for for Jim's teams is, you know, I was in both of those environments and we were all, you know, moving in the same direction. We all had the same goals and uh, we wanted to to achieve success together. And, you know, I think both managers um, did that in a really uh, impressive way. You were a player on some great New England Revolution teams in particular that I still don't think get enough respect in this league today. What do you remember as some of the most special things about those Revolution teams? The bonds, you know, the bond in the locker room. I don't think, you know, there's many that are are stronger. Um, and, and the league was different then, Grant. You know, they, this was an American league. And a lot of us came through the the college system. And so there was a lot of um, similarities in, in our uh, pathway to the pros. But that particular stretch, you know, I got there in 2003 and left after the end of the 2007 season. Coming into work every day was was so much fun. We loved competing. And um, we also were so competitive uh, that we fought a lot. And but, you know, that that was part of the environment at that time. And you could you could have fights, you know, daily and we would be laughing about it in the locker room after practice or have, you know, somebody would be winding you up. If I got into it with Jay Heap, somebody was winding one of us up to see if we could get it going longer. Um, and I think that's what made us, you know, it made it such a special group. Um, we, we really looked out for each other, you know, on and off the field in ways where you could see the chemistry on the field and the, and the way we played the game. And that's certainly a product of Stevie Nichol and his management as well. Paul Mariner, um, it was a special group and we talk about it all the time. A lot of those players are still in touch and it's because um, we had a, a great connection in the locker room and on the field. And the, the unfortunate part is we didn't win more championships because I think, like you said, maybe it's not recognized because there's not enough titles to back it up. You know, we made three MLS cups in a row and didn't win any of them. Won the one um, U.S. Open Cup. And I think that group should have more trophies. Uh, to talk about. So, you know, I think that's probably why it's not recognized more than, uh, you know, it, it could be. But yeah, it was it was a special time, certainly. You're also a St. Louis guy. Originally, St. Louis has always been one of the historic soccer cities in the United States, finally getting an MLS team next season. What sort of influence did growing up in the soccer culture of St. Louis have on you? Well, I would say in the later stages of you know uh, of my youth um i could i could sense and then feel just how special that uh, environment was because early on it was just i love to play sports i love to compete it wasn't just soccer you know i was playing basketball i was playing baseball anything where i could be out with my buddies you know competing but then you start to see at you know at the club level and then really at you know in high school and i know people talk about this all the time at you know it was where'd you go to high school and and our high school um you know soccer culture was was special it was neat you know we would get real crowds at our games and 
Um, I was I was really um, impressed at that time um, in the Metro Catholic Conference and in the in the competition we had uh, at just uh, how neat the game day experience was at a level where you wouldn't expect it. And so I think that helped drive you know the um, you know the desire to do want to do it you know past high school you know and um, it was competitive games it was talked about you know in the papers and at school um you know so you were kind of the big guy on campus in ways where you know you if you were a part of the the varsity soccer team that mattered and and i think that was pretty cool and so again it, it was me being competitive and 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 being able to grow up in, in such a competitive soccer environment i'm really looking forward to having st louis in the league next year um you know, I grew up in Kansas City in the 80s and was mm -hmm. into indoor soccer and hated the St. Louis Steamers. It was a right. nice rivalry. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having St. Louis in the league. Um, in terms of the soccer culture of Cincinnati, that's a different story, right? I mean, St. Louis has this very historic soccer culture. What have you learned about this soccer culture that's developed now in Cincinnati, Ohio? There's a lot of pride in, in um, the local teams um the local players you know anybody that uh, um has roots in cincinnati and represents um this town you could you could see the the pride that it brings to um the fans you know obviously if you look back at just the the run in, in 2017 and um you know again from an from an outsider's perspective i remember watching those that run and, and thinking man look at this fan base and look at uh, the support that that team is getting. Um, and, you know, I think that's what drove, uh, you know, the success on the field, certainly, um, as well as it becoming a, an MLS franchise. Um, that's created by your, by your fans and, and by the town and, and the appreciation for soccer and for their uh, sports teams. And so um, that was the first taste I got of it. Um, and then, you know, now being entrenched in it, uh, it is, it's special. And it, and it can, the scary thing is it can be e even, even more, you know, I think early on, you know, when you experience the game day environment, you know, after three seasons of not having success, you could feel the energy in the, in the building was, ah, what's it going to look like, you know, and, you know, is this team going to be, uh, any good? Are they? Are we going to win games? Where now heading into uh, a very important game against Columbus, along the way it's felt different um, in our home games, and um, certainly winning games helps. And there's a sense of belief, I think, from the fan base that you know we're moving in the right direction, um, and their support's been incredible. Um, I, I I'm very fortunate, and we are very fortunate to have a. Uh, a community and, and fans that care so much about their team and have been by this team's side, even in, in moments of, of real struggle. So hopefully we can um, reward them in ways where that fan base continues to grow and, and, and we can create an environment where, you know, it's, it's tops in the league. Two more questions for you. One short term, one longer term. What do you want from your Cincinnati team the rest of the way here in the stretch run to the playoffs to try and get you over the line. What in particular do you want to see? I would like to see us manage <clears throat> games and situations that show a real belief that, you know, we can be a playoff team. I think one of the struggles has been um, game management, closing out games, closing out halves, you know, how we respond when we score, concede a goal, we can still be better in those ways, which means I can be better. And so as a group, um, how can we, um, create more belief and confidence that we deserve to be here and we should be winning these games. Cause I think if we can get over the hump in, in, in that regard, we're going to be playing a meaningful games at the end of the year. So that's certainly something that um, we can improve on, you know, taking into account the first 26 games of the year. Um, and, you know, as we close out the year um, for me, it's how can we position ourselves to be a, playing in the playoffs. And uh, I think the game management one is the biggest factor right now, because I think we've positioned ourselves in enough games to get points, you know, whether we've been playing well, whether we haven't been playing well, uh, if we can get that right. And if we can get wins, um, we're at a point now where 
yeah, we're right in the mix. And uh, being a playoff team is certainly achievable. And I want that hunger from our group to expect to be there because I think it would be really special for this club and for these fans and for this team, for our group, um, to be competing in the playoffs um, you know, from where we started. Last question's even sort of longer term, which is keeping in mind that any team that gets into the playoffs has a chance to win the whole thing. I get it. But like, right. how do you take the next step even higher in future seasons to where you're in the regular season at the top of the standings? Yeah. I mean, going, you know, to the ultimate goals, holding trophies, Grant, I, I want this club, our, our, our coaches, our players, the fans, I want to experience uh, holding trophies. That That's, you know, why I do this is, is to experience not for myself, but in the team setting, being a champion. Um, and so in the future, that that's certainly the ultimate goal. But I think, you know, in how we get there, certainly there's, you know, the goals of not just being a playoff team, but uh, hosting a, a playoff game for the fans. That's, that's important. And the more you can host, the better chance you're going to have playing in front of your home fans, um, you know, in the playoffs. Um, but not just league play. Can we be a, a team that's competing in the Champions League? I think, you know, uh, that would be a, uh, an important step and a, and a goal that um, has us now not just thinking of league play, but, you know, uh, on this continent, how, how can we be a top team? And so uh, I do think it's achievable with our ownership group, the support we have, their willingness to, to provide the resources to, um, to help us um, be successful. These are attainable goals, but certainly, you know, how do we get there um, becomes a challenge. And I, and I think those are things in the future that um, I would love to see for FCC. But uh, we, know, we know that there's a lot of work that has to be done to, uh, to achieve those goals. But I do think that is realistic. Pat Noonan is the head coach of FC Cincinnati. Pat, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Pat Noonan as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.